Welcome to Real Talk Arkansas. I'm your host, Cody Ford, Director of Programming and Outreach at Arkansas Cinema Society. And today we have a very special episode, one that I have been wanting to do basically ever since we started this podcast. We have our co-founder, writer, director, Arkansas native, Jeff Nichols. And I've been a big fan of Jeff's I mean, for years, way before I ever worked for ACS. And going back to when I first you know, got the DVD of Shotgun Stories in that envelope, the, the way Netflix used to do it. And today we're going to talk about a film I actually got to see in theaters in Fayetteville long ago in 2011, whenever it was released. And that is Jeff's second film, Take Shelter. Take Shelter is a fantastic film. It sort of blends a lot of genres. It's a little bit of a love story. It's a little bit of body horror. It's a little bit of apocalyptic horror. And it's it just always has you questioning what's real and what isn't. It, it is a story of a man who is played by Michael Shannon. And he's beginning to just question his reality through all these visions that he's having. And uh, his, his co-star is Jessica Chastain who this was one of her very early roles before when she was first starting to break out. So it's just a beautiful film, one of my favorites that Jeff has ever made. And so we got to sit down at the very end of 2021, before the end of the year where Tech Shelter celebrated its 10th anniversary, and chat for a bit. So um, I hope you all enjoy this conversation that we have with Jeff. And if you haven't seen all of his films, I highly recommend you sit down and watch them all because they're all fantastic and they all seem to have like their own voice and their own vision in a way that makes them unique and you, you'll, you'll love them all in different ways. That's the best way I can put it. But again, this is Jeff Nichols on Real Talk Arkansas. Jeff, thanks for being here today on Real Talk Arkansas. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, yeah, th th this this is going to be a fun one, and I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. So I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, you know, I guess um, to start off with, uh, most people I think know who listen to the show or follow ACS, but you are the the co-founder of ACS and our chairman of the board currently. Right. Uh, so um, and 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 I guess with that, like. Um, Real quick before we get going, what was it that really made you want to launch ACS with Catherine? You know, part of it uh, was the absence of the Little Rock Film Festival. I think that's actually where the conversation began. Catherine and I knew each other a little bit in high school. She was actually a year ahead of me at Little Rock Central High. But um, I knew that she had been in the film business and I think I was home for the holidays and, you know, we were talking about things we could do. And, and she was saying, you know, we have to get another film festival up and running. And I obviously now live in Austin, Texas, and was really influenced and impressed by what Richard Linkletter had done with the Austin Film Society, and which felt way more um, impactful than, than a, a solo film festival, you know, which just happens once a year. And you, you show a couple of films, you invite some filmmakers and, and that's it. Uh, it really seemed to have a much broader impact on the community. And, and so I started to talk to Catherine about, you know, well, what if we did something that had those aspirations? Not that we've reached all of those aspirations yet by any, any stretch, but, you know, what if we had something that, that really tried year round to be additive to, um, you know, the community. And of course, being in Little Rock, we started kind of Little Rock focused and then quickly decided, well, if we're gonna do this, let's, let's think about it statewide. Um, and instead of calling it the Little Rock Cinema Society or something like that, let's call it the Arkansas Cinema Society. And, um, and that, that was really the start of it. Um, the, you know, I guess a, a bigger underlying kind of philosophy, philosophy behind it was kind of the dis disconnect I felt as a young kid growing up in Arkansas. There just were not very many examples of filmmakers or films <clears throat> coming out of Arkansas, you know, I, I, we grew up and heard the story of, remember that one time there was a movie that shot around the Capitol and they like blew up a helicopter and it like stained the Capitol building. Like that was about it until of course, Sling Blade came out uh, with Billy Bob Thornton, which really changed, changed my life in a lot of ways. But even with that, I didn't have any personal connections to that. Um, and so, so even that felt somehow disconnected and, and I, I found when I went to North Carolina School of the Arts for film school, 
I had these kind of little, little milestones in my life that made the idea of making films more tangible, more real. And a lot of that had to do with, with, you know, looking at the process of making films, being exposed to the people that actually made films and that were successful. There's something about, you know, physically being in the space with those people, listening to them talk um, that, that does make it seem more tangible and more real. And so that kind of became the underpinning of the philosophy for the Arkansas Cinema Society, which was, okay, well, let's try and actually get people here. Let's try to get people here to talk about what they've done. And, um, and throughout the year, you know, have seminars and have um, uh, guest speakers that can maybe bring this somewhat kind of magical, distant feeling thing down to earth a little bit. You've talked about growing up and there not being a lot of examples here. What was the moment or was, or was it just a series of moments? Cause you did kind of mention a few things that made you want to be a filmmaker. Was it just, uh, you saw star Wars as a kid and you're like, I want to do that. Or was it a gradual process for you? It was, it was more gradual. Um, mainly because it, it seems a little more rudderless than that. You know, um, I hadn't taken any, there, there were no film classes to take in junior high or high school. I, I was writing some short stories. Um, <laughs> I was kind of getting into uh, Southern fiction a little bit, but, you know, I just really had no clue of what the process of making f- films was. And this was kind of the mid nineties when American independent cinema was starting to kind of break through to the mainstream, you know, with films like Slacker and Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, like, you know, the, this cinema was starting to find its way outside of um, coastal art houses. And, you know, I saw Pulp Fiction at the Park Plaza Mall um, in Little Rock. And, and you, you started to have a concept of, you know, th- that there was such a thing as independent film, or at least I did. And the idea of film school seemed a little kind of popular. It seemed kind of like a something to do. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, I had to... I. I really had no clue of what I was stepping into. And it wasn't until I got to film school and I started to learn that process that, that I realized one, I kind of had a knack for it. I enjoyed the process, um, which is very tactile. I mean, it's like a trade. It's like, uh, you know, studying plumbing or electrical work or something. It it has very, you know, tactile, purposeful um, components to it. And I really liked that. I really responded to it. And, um, and so it was really through film school that I figured out, A, what filmmaking was about, and B, that I, that I liked it. And uh, you went to film school with David Gordon Green? Is, is that correct? That's right. He was yeah. a few years ahead of me. So in school, we really weren't that close. You know, I was just a, uh, like a dumb freshman when, when they were kind of at their peak in the film school. But it was the summer after my sophomore year, um, a professor of ours made a documentary and David and I worked on that together and we really became friends. And that happens to be the same summer that he had just finished shooting George Washington. So here's this guy talking about this, you know, 35 scope narrative film that he had just shot. And we were both essentially PAs on this, you know, documentary shooting in North Carolina. And, um, and we just hit it off and we've, we've been friends and he's been a, a mentor of mine kind of ever since. Now, I believe you were saying uh, during your Q&A at Filmland that, you know, he really kind of launched it. So before, because we are here today to talk about the 10th anniversary of Take Shelter. But before we do that, I do want to touch on shotgun stories just a little bit. So, you know, you did that. You PA'd, you and David PA'd on this film. You graduated film school. What did you do that sort of led your path to make shotgun stories? Well, I really did look at George Washington, partly as an aesthetic, you know, narrative um, I guess, example, but also really as a business model, David, you know, put together, a, which now is a pretty significant amount of money, I think, for, a, for an independent film, um, probably about 50 grand. And the way that he used that money to make a film that I thought was really beautiful, it looked really professional, it was shot on 35, it was in scope, you know, it felt like, um, for lack of a better term, a real movie. And, you know, I, I, I got out of film school with this, uh, I, I can't really explain why I had it, but with this desire to make a film by the time I was 25. Uh, I knew I had aspirations in my own personal life. You know, I wanted to be married one day and have kids one day. 
and I knew that filmmaking would be a costly, selfish endeavor. And the longer that I went into my life without having really pulled the ripcord on making a film, the harder it was going to be. And so uh, the problem was I came out of film school, having come out of the directing program with very real or with not very much real world knowledge about producing. I couldn't produce my own film. And so I needed to kind of fill in those knowledge gaps. And I came down to Austin because my brother was down here in law school. And um, I quickly got a job as a PA on a documentary shooting here about Towns Van Zandt. And I worked on that for a year. And during that year, Margaret Brown, the director of that film, was really gracious and kind of let me take on things and kind of sit in and, and um, look over the shoulder of a lot of producers that she had come through. And I kind of, you know, filled in those, those knowledge gaps. And again, it was all part of this, like, for whatever reason, this, you know, this desire to make a film by the time I was 25. So I, I took that knowledge and that real world producing knowledge. I, I started hatching a concept for a film that could be shot on the cheap. And that was, that was shotgun stories. And I kind of put all of those things together. And by the time I was 24, I, I had moved back to Little Rock with the stated very clear goal of making my first film, which was shotgun stories. And I definitely would love to have you back at some point and we can do a deep dive on shotgun stories. Cause I really do love that film. Uh, I am curious though, because this is going to lead us into take shelter. How did you and Michael Shannon get connected? Because I mean, he, he's the lead in shotgun stories, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I'm sorry for my cough. I'm getting over a chest cold. It's but right. the, um, you know, uh, it was the same professor actually who was making the documentary that David Gordon Green and I met on. Uh, he had worked with Michael Shannon at the Sundance Labs uh, in their director's lab, which if you know anything about those labs, um, they're quite famous. You know, Tarantino went through them. And, and when you're there uh, and everyone else for that matter, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, Chloe Zhao, like everybody's been through those and um, except for me. And uh, he was there and, you know, you, you, you put up scenes from your film and you shoot them on video. And so they bring actors up to park city to take part in these, um, you know, really acting exercises or these, these directing exercises. And this professor came back to school with, with a videotape of Michael Shannon, in one of his scenes and he put it in and, and he was just kind of showing me the, the scene that he had done. And all I could look at was of course, Michael Shannon. I was like, who is, who is that? And um, he's like, yeah, it's this cool guy, Michael Shannon. You should, you should pay attention to him. So I started, um, you know, this was probably my junior year of college, sophomore or junior. And um, I started watching for him in films and he showed up in films like, you know, Pearl Harbor and high crimes and uh, you know, a couple of other things. And, I just really thought the guy was interesting. And so when I sat down to write shotgun stories, I wrote it specifically for him. And then eventually, um, you know, the same professor, Gary Hawkins gave me, um, gave me my cell phone number and I just called him up and said, Hey, you don't know me. I'm a kid from Arkansas. Gary Hawkins gave me your number, but I, I've written a script for you, which at that time, um, I think was still a little unique for Mike, you know, that someone might write a lead role for him. And, um, and fortunately, he read it and liked it and, and decided to come down. And, and we've really been uh, collaborators ever since. Was that his first lead role? You know, I don't know if it was. Um, obviously not on stage. He, you know, had been doing, um, bringing Tracy Letts's plays, mainly Killer Joe and Bug, to life um, in Chicago, New York, and I think London. And so in Bug, he was, he was the lead. In films, it, you know... I think it might've been, um, I think it might've been one of his, his first there, there, somebody probably can get on IMDb and, and correct me on that, but there weren't a lot of them floating around yeah. at least, um, if any. Yeah. And, and so it was a real opportunity, you know, um, for him and for both of us to kind of stretch our legs. Yeah. I, I remember, I mean, I didn't know you then obviously, but I do remember hearing stories from people like, Oh, this guy, he's shooting this movie. Cause you, you were shooting out like out in England and Scott area. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah and pretty, and much, pretty much the drive from, you know, my grandparents and parents grew up in Alzheimer, Arkansas, and the drive from Little Rock to Alzheimer, which encompasses, you know, Scott, Keogh, England. Um, it's it's essentially everything on that drive out to my grandparents' house is in, is in shock. And stuff. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, and I actually, I don't think I saw it until Netflix, like a few years ago, or a few oh. years later after it came out, uh, back when you could still get the DVDs, I believe, was, was how I watched it. And uh, but I did see Take Shelter in the theater up here in Fayetteville, actually. It was back before everything had like a 3D and, uh, you know, IMAX version and all that. And they would still get some independent films. And it played here at the uh, at Fiesta Square. And I remember going and watching. I don't it may have been it was either late 2011, early 2012. I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, but, 2011, I think, is when it got released. Yeah, yeah and, and at this point, I had seen uh, Shotgun Stories, you know, and I'd heard, you know, from people who'd worked on the film, you know, about you and, and all that. So I remember being very excited to watch it. Now, with you know, when Shotgun Stories came out, it was pretty well received critically, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. did, did it make it, did, was it just as hard to get the second one off the ground or did having that calling card uh, make it a little bit easier? Oh, it was every bit as hard, um, if not harder. Actually, uh, obviously, we needed more money, but but there was an important phase actually because I was, you know, we were shooting Shocking Stories in two thousand four, two thousand five, and I wasn't on the set for Take Shelter until two thousand ten. That's a tremendous amount of time, almost about the same amount of time since Loving was <laughs> done, and whatever it is I'm going to make next. But um, you know, it was an interesting path. There was a project that came up. Um, through Killer Films, which was a really famous, is, was a really famous indie uh, film label out of New York, had asked me to do a, a project with them that I had thrown my entire bean into and all eggs, you know, went into this basket to make this film with them that was based on a memoir. And of course, inevitably, it fell through. And I kind of, and that had taken up basically from 2006 to 2008, um, that had taken up that, that time in my life. And I looked up in 2008 and whatever energy, you know, <laughs> I had thought there, you know, had been created by shocking stories certainly was dissipating. And I was really freaking out. Um, I was about to get married to my wife and the financial crisis was looming. And, and I, and I very much kind of was like, I have to get something done. You know, there was this idea I had for this movie mud uh, that was percolating. I knew I wanted to write that as well, but, but I knew that mud was going to be of a scale that I couldn't pull off, um, really, really cheaply. So I needed to come up with something else. I needed to come up with a bridge between shotgun stories and mud. And I'm feeling all this anxiety and stress, both personally and also kind of globally. And, um, and that's the summer that, that takes shelter kind of kind of came out of me. I remember being at a restaurant with my wife and saying, Hey, I got, I had this idea the other day of a guy who gets kind of scared by these dreams about storms, these really vicious storms. And so he, he uses all of his money to build a tornado shelter in his backyard. And, um, and Missy, my wife was like, yeah, that sounds good. You should do that. And, um, and that was, that was really it. You know, I, I, I sat down in the summer of 2008 and, and wrote that. And so then, and I also wrote mud that summer. Um, it was somewhat prolific for me because I'm a slow writer. And, uh, and so then I had shotgun stories on DVD and I had the script for take shelter and the script for mud. And I was basically just wandering around <laughs> saying like, please, <clears throat> I need some help. You know, I need some help getting these made. And, um, and through, uh, shotgun stories. I'd been connected with CAA, which is my agency. And there was a young guy there in their film finance department named Brian Cavanaugh Jones. And when shotgun stories, you know, was technically edited, I edited it on my laptop in my house. Um, I had a DVD, you know, export of it. And David Gordon Green was like, but I, I still needed finishing funds to, you know, finish the sound and the color and get a film print made. And David Gordon Green said, hey, um, don't send it to anybody else. Send it to this guy, Brian Cavanaugh Jones at CAA. He finds finishing funds for films. And Brian and I became friends. He helped put together the finishing funds for Shocking Stories with a company called Upload Films. And, um, and even though I had a different agent at, at CAA, who I still have, a guy named Craig Guerin, who's great, Brian and I were really, he was, he was my age. We were really... Um, he was the one that through those kind of quiet times 
would call me every week and check in and, and, and kind of kept me creatively afloat and connected, uh, or at least thinking I was connected, you know, to the industry. And so I had uh, given him the script for Take Shelter and he had called and said, you know, there's a producer in Austin who's really great. There's a really great indie film producer named Sarah Green. She's working with Terrence Malick. And I was like, holy crap, you know, that's Terrence Malick is the greatest filmmaker of all time. And he said, you should go have coffee with her. So let's get her this, the script. So, so Sarah was sent shotgun stories and, and those two scripts. And fortunately at the time, she had an assistant named Morgan Pollitt who was a big fan of my brother's band, Lucero. And so she knew about shotgun stories and she's the one that kind of marched into Sarah Green's desk and was like, you've got to read this. Like, you've got to look at this filmmaker. And so Sarah did, and we had coffee and she was really great. You know, she, she said, uh, you know, I, I want to help however I can with Take Shelter, but I want to produce mud. Like whatever you do with mud, I'm a, I'm the producer on mud. I'm like, okay, great. Um, and she's an executive producer on, on Take Shelter. And so between that connection and Brian Kavanaugh Jones, um, we really started to have some, some conversations around Take Shelter. Now, obviously with Take Shelter, <coughs> it's a pretty inexpensive film to make, except for all of the craziness, you know, all of the, the, the birds and the flying furniture and, and all these other things and the storms. And I knew there would be a visual effects component, which I hadn't worked with you know computer generated generated effects at all but brian simultaneously through his caa connections had been working with these guys the strauss brothers which owned a visual effects company called hydraulics spelled really strangely out in la and they'd been doing visual effects for a long time they're really really cool guys well they had been looking to get into some directing themselves as well as kind of maybe producing some independent stuff and it was the right time, the right people. Brian put us together and they, they read that script and were like, yeah, you know, we'll basically be in-kind investors. Um, you know, we won't give you any money, but we'll give you the visual effects work, you know, for really, really low cost. And then there was a producer out of Ohio um, who I actually have a pretty frayed relationship with still. Um, but he, he came in and started to put some money together. Sarah put some money together. And, um, and all of a sudden, this kind of strange little independent film that I wrote started to look like it was going to, you know, become a reality. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess as a, as a period to this very long, you know, conversation, Sarah Green and Brian Cavill Jones to this day are my, are my producing partners. Well, I want to jump back real quick to the, the writing process, the initial idea. So yeah, you have you have this idea, a guy building the storm shelter, and I mean, there's there's so much happening with the story. You know, when I watch it, that there's, I mean, at times it's sort of body horror, at times it's like apocalyptic. I mean, I mean, you you did a good job of mixing the genres. I mean, I mean, I say body horror, you know, it, it's a stretch, but like mental you know, the mental issues. And even there's sure. even like little nods to like zombie apocalypse type things in there. 100%. And, and, and so it, it, it's so interesting. I, I was curious because I did a second uh, watch through, I, I watched it uh, a few weeks ago and then I watched it again this morning. Was there any growing up? I mean, you know, we're, you were here, I'm from Arkansas, you're from Arkansas. And they're always like, maybe they were our cousins or family. You know, there's always just families who are a little bit out there on the religious side, you know, that they weren't going to the first Methodist church. They were, you know, speaking in tongues or, or what have you. Uh, and, and, you know, they would always be big on prophecy or, you know, and like the end Armageddon's coming. Were you exposed to that much growing up or because I've noticed like the film doesn't have overt religious overtones other than, I guess, that one conversation with the father-in-law, but there's so much of it that sort of kind of goes along with the, you know, the, the sort of things that, you know, religious people would say, but, but, but you still sort of kept it in more of an agnostic sort of secular kind of way. So, so see, I'm just curious, was there much of a religious influence on the ideas? Um, no, I mean, the whole thing felt um, a little biblical, just, just in the idea of, of, you know, this, this guy building this thing in the community around him thinking, you know, he might have mental problems and, and him, 
believing so deeply in a thing that no one else could see. I mean, obviously <laughs> there's some pretty um, clear connections there growing up, you know, I mean, we grew up Methodist. Um, it wasn't, I did not grow up in a severe, um, you know, Christian household. There was a period, I guess when I was in junior high, that fundamentalism started to kind of show up in Little Rock in a really big way. There was a church called Fellowship Bible Church, which was, you know, yeah, that pretty, big one out there off the interstate, I believe. Yeah. Like yeah. it had some pretty, pretty big, um, following. And, and we had a, you know, I was really big into like our church as a youth group and, uh, mainly because it was a social outlet for a seventh and an eighth grader who had no other social outlet. And, and there was a period there where our youth minister came in. I forget the guy's name, but he was ultra conservative. And, um, and I had a crush on a girl in, in that youth group who was ultra conservative. And so I kind of like jumped on that bandwagon for, uh, for about a year and a half, mainly cause I was just trying to get a date. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> but you know, I got into it and I started reading the Bible a little bit. Um, and, and then I just, uh, I was really struck. Um, I don't know. It, I felt kind of taken advantage of, I felt like I kind of got, got caught up in, in drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit with, it has very little to do with Christianity or, you know, anything like that. It was with this scene, you know, it was with, it was just like any other scene. Like it has its leaders and, and it has its followers. And, and I remember coming out of that thinking, I'm never going to allow something like that, something outside of me to, um, to run my life. And, and I kind of saw how easy it is for that to happen. Um, and so there's always been kind of an underpinning of um, maybe the hypocrisy, you know, held not just in organized religion, but really the people that, that push it and profess it, you know, those, those leaders, that's a pretty easy thread to pull. Um, but I've always had that kind of in the back of my mind, but my grandmother was very religious um, and would talk a lot about revelations. And I, I remember thinking how, what's the way to say this, how arrogant it was to think that, that you're living in the end of times because everybody likes to think about that. And the reason I think we like to think about it is because it gives our lives a lot of purpose. Um, of course you want to be around for the end of times because then it somehow separates you from the reality, which is here's this tiny speck of sand in this massive universe that holds very little meaning in, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. And so, of course, you want to, you know, look for those signs around you of the apocalypse, because oddly, it gives you, it gives your life real meaning. And I saw that in, in my grandmother, and, and I saw it, uh, to be quite honest, as a, as a weakness. And so those are really, you know, in terms of my, I guess, religious foundations, you know, those are kind of the two things that I point to that have made me, me, um, that directly relate to, to take shelter. Um, I had those things kind of floating around, but really, but really I didn't, I wasn't thinking about those things a lot. You know, you come up with an idea like that and you're like, oh, people, people can make um, connections to Noah or whatever else, like, that's cool. All we need is for people to make those connections. I don't need to say anything else about it. Now I just need to think about myself and what I'm feeling in the world and what I'm going through, which at the time was how I felt like the world was, you know, losing its thread and, and, and that things were falling apart. And here I was, I had a little bit of success. I was about to get married. I wanted to have a kid. And it felt like the world was unraveling a little bit and how scary it is to try to hold all of these pieces together in order to have a life and a family. And the, the very thin, you know, uh, margin between having a successful, happy, healthy life and family and everything just going completely to shit. Like there, you know, there seemed to be a very thin veil between those two, um, you know, existences. And, and, and I think 
Take Shelter really began as, as a way to, to, to talk about that fear and that anxiety. I was processing it for you. I mean, you know, and things, uh, I mean, let's say they haven't been looking up since then, maybe. So I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you still find yourself in that place at times or? I do, but I've got, as I've gotten older, things have settled down for me a little bit. Yeah. Um, I've made more money, which helps. Yeah. Um, like it, it really does. Like if you come from a place where you didn't have a lot of money, um, to then have some money actually <laughs> makes, a, makes a big difference. Um, Did you build a I'm big quite, storm shelter with, with I, money? I, I didn't. I didn't. However, I do still walk around um, like wholly gripped by the fear that my career is, is inevitably falling apart. And, you know, <laughs> and all of this is just, you know, you had a good run, kid, but now it's all, you know, it's all gone. Um, so certainly all of that which I think everybody has those anxieties and those, you know, fears and, and, you know, self deprecating thoughts, but, um, but, you know, no, it, it doesn't grip me the, the way that it did in 2008 uh, and 2000 to 2010. Uh, it's different now. I think I picked up your anxiety and I've been carrying it with me the last few years. There you go. Uh, there you're welcome, go, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, you know, we, we've talked about the background in terms of how you got it made in terms of the writing. Uh, so you're putting it together and you just call Michael and you're like, hey, I've got this new movie and, and he hops on board, uh, something like that. Kind of, you know, there was actually another actor that I was talking to that I've never talked about and, and, and I won't mention his name, you know, but, but it, you know, that kind of quickly fell through. And, and so then it was like, <laughs> it was one of those strange instances because I, I usually write for Michael and, um, but I hadn't in this instance, uh, I'd really written for myself. I really saw Curtis as, as me. And, you know, I, so I called Mike and he, um, had had a daughter in, in the time between shotgun stories and, and this phone call. And I remember hearing him over the phone speaking with his daughter, who was still quite young at the time. And his whole voice changed, you know, I, I couldn't see him in person because it was over the phone, but I, I just remember thinking like, Oh, this is the, this is the father of a daughter. And, and, you know, hearing Mike use that voice was all the more confirming of this idea that he should be playing this part. Um, but it's also kind of stupid luck, you know, like, and you never, I knew Mike was an amazing actor, but you don't really appreciate it, you know, um, it, it, until you're in the, in the middle of it. But I, I do remember distinctly, you know, being on set there, there's the moment in the film after he wakes up with blood in his mouth and he's kind of had this seizure where he sits down at the dinner table with his wife and kind of lays it all out. And I remember the night that we were on set, I looked over at the um, boom operator, who's kind of a goofy guy from Ohio. And, uh, and he said something like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I'm feeling good. I was like, you're about to, you're about to get a Mike Shannon monologue. And uh, you're welcome. Like, and, 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 I had the wherewithal to know, especially in the middle of that film, but that we were in the presence of someone doing something quite extraordinary. When you add then the genius of Jessica Chastain on top of that, um, I look back as just, man, I was, man, I was lucky. I was just really lucky. And I wanted to ask you about Jessica, about how she got involved. Was it through Sarah Green? Because... It absolutely was, you yeah, know, um, with the, so, the Malik film that she had done. Yeah. Malik, um, at the time that I met Sarah, Malik was in, you know, one of the years of editing on, on the tree of life. And she was like, you should really look at this actress, Jessica Chastain, who I had never heard of. No one had ever really heard of her. And <laughs> I actually, I mean, it's quite absurd now, but and part of it was, I just wanted to meet Malik, but Sarah was like, I, you should talk to Terry about it, you know? And so I, I went to the editing room of the tree of life and sat with Terrence Malick as he kind of scrolled through some footage and, uh, and basically gave Jessica his blessing. Um, 
which, you know, obviously feels kind of absurd now that I needed to go kind of like check, check that out. But, um, but then I met Jessica, I was on a trip out in LA. Uh, she was living out there at the time and we went and had coffee and she was just so gracious. Uh, she had seen shocking stories and really loved it. She really loved Michael Shannon. And she kind of was like, yep, I'm in, you know, it wasn't a negotiation. And I remember that producer from Ohio, you know, he called and was like, I mean, who is this? Like, should we really like, who is this? Maybe there's someone bigger we could try to get. And I just, I just remember saying like, no, that's a mistake. Don't, don't do that. Um, let's just, let's just cast, cast this, this actress. And, um, and of course she turned out to be Jessica Chastain. You know, with this film, there's real authenticity to it in, in a lot of the little details that I miss. I mean, Jessica's performance, like, I mean, her and Michael have such good chemistry together. And I mean, and I know a lot of that is coming from your writing and direction of just like that scene I mentioned with like the father-in-law and the family, it's like after church, it, it, I, I felt like, oh, I've lived this scene at some point <laughs> somehow. And, but one of the questions I was curious about with authenticity, I mean, with uh, Curtis, uh, Michael's character working on a road crew and all that, and, and one thing is just, you know, I, I had to look on Wikipedia because I really thought it was set in Arkansas, but I was like, I don't think it is. And then I looked it up and saw you said it in Ohio, but it just really felt like an Eastern Arkansas film to me. Like it could have been shot in Cersei and I would have believed it, you know, but sure. I, I was curious on authenticity. Did you ever work on a road crew? Um, no, but so, and actually I, you know, it was written to be Southeastern Arkansas. Um, and you know, one of the stipulations with this producer from Ohio was that I needed to shoot it in Ohio. And I knew enough at that point not to try to make Ohio look like Arkansas. I wasn't going to try to do that. So I went up there and I kind of listened to people and listened to the accents and I saw the landscape. And if you go west out of Cleveland, it gets kind of flat. And I was like, all right, you know, this works. Uh, I just really needed that horizon line, um, which Southeast Arkansas has, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a plenty. And, and one, because I think it makes beautiful films and, and you shoot in scope and you've got this beautiful horizon line, but also because I needed somewhere to put these storms. And so if you're in a neighborhood with a lot of trees where you can't see the sky, <coughs> that wouldn't work. So I needed a big sky. So I figured out that that, that that location would work in terms of, you know, he's actually, it's, he's part of a drilling crew. And um, I'd gotten that idea because uh, a distant cousin of, of mine um, who lives in DeWitt, Arkansas, um, actually with his son had a water well drilling business. And I'd honestly been down to visit him to do research for mud because he also happened to own one of the houseboats <laughs> um, that I based mud off of. But I was hanging out with him for a weekend and, and talking about him drilling water wells. And, you know, they had the big rig that you take out. And, um, and so originally in the script, he, they were drilling for water, which I thought was really interesting, given, you know, the viscous nature of that kind of uh, the rain and those, in those terrible storms that maybe he was puncturing the earth and kind of pulling water out of it and, now it's coming back down on his head like oil. Um, but, a, but we didn't really, um, I guess they, they, they dig some water wells up there in Ohio, but it wasn't, it wasn't as prevalent as it is in Southeast Arkansas. And then some connection to the producer, some, some connection around Cleveland was like, you know, there's this, um, there's this sand quarry, uh, and they have a bunch of, they have a drilling rig out there. Do you guys want to go look at this sand quarry? And I didn't even know what that was or what that would even look like. And as soon as we went out there, we were like, well, this is cool looking, you know, like visually, this is very striking. And here's a, <coughs> you know, here's a, a drilling rig. And yeah, let's, they were actually drilling, not for water. They would drill down and then basically to drop, um, explosives down to like blow off another shelf of this quarry that then they would break that down and turn it into sand uh, for like golf courses and stuff. But, um, but you know, it just, when you're making an independent film, you have to be pretty nimble. And one, 
you know, all right, you want to go to Ohio? All right, I'll go to Ohio, you know, to get this movie made. Sure. But I'm okay. going to make it look like Arkansas. <laughs> well, I'm going to find a place that, that gives me the things that, that Arkansas yeah. gives me, in, in, at least in terms of horizon lines. And then, you know, and okay, you don't have water world drillers? All right, what kind of drillers do you have? Okay, a sand quarry? All right, that's cool yeah. looking. And, you know, you walk, you walk into a place like that and it's got all of this machinery and, and, and all of this stuff. And you're like, okay, that's just production value that looks cool, you yeah. know? And I'll, I'll say this, which is probably more important maybe to your answer or to your question. Um, it's always been really important for me to give my characters jobs because uh, it, it defines so much about who they are, their socioeconomic level, you know, how they operate in their home with the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, um, you know, as much as we, we maybe don't want to admit it, what we do for a living really dictates a lot about how we live, who our yeah. friends are and everything else. And so it's been really important to me when I'm early on, when I'm starting to build character and build stories that I give people jobs because most people have jobs, you know, um, and they matter and they, and they define a lot about us. And so very early on, I picked that job of a, of a water well driller and it started to define kind of where this character was at um, on the socioeconomic spectrum. And, and, you know, because we had made shotgun stories together, Mike and I had a lot of conversations about the differences between his character, son Hayes in shotgun stories and Curtis LaForge in take shelter, you know, to a lot of people, those characters might look very similar, but they're actually quite different, you know? Um, and they move differently and they, they care about much different things. Um, and, <clears throat> and a lot of that has to do with the fact that their jobs are different. You know, how long was production on Tech Shelter? <laughs> we shot it in four weeks. Oh, okay. um, four, four, six day weeks that were just, you know, on the one hand, it was pretty magical, but on the other, it was just hell on earth. Because when you're working on a production with such a small budget, you're shooting film, you're shipping the film off. Um, it's getting developed, you're getting negative reports. So they're going to let you know if something, you know, if had a light leak on it or it has a giant, you know, scratch through the middle of it, but you're not really seeing dailies. Um, so you're, you're shooting the film blind essentially, which is how we did shotgun stories, but that didn't mean it was healthy or I was used to it. Um, so <laughs> because the production had such a small budget and such a tight schedule, there was no, um, there were no reshoots. There was no, man, you know, we didn't get that yesterday. We'll go back and get that, you know, in two days. No, if, if you left a location and you left a scene and you left a day, you left it all forever. So there was this intensity to every single part of every single day where it felt like the plane could hit the mountain at any moment. And you just had to make things work and oh this didn't show up this actor didn't show up or this location fell through like here we here we go you know um it was a very stressful um time but then of course i got to watch mike and jessica act every day so then it was also this really beautiful time but it was more stressful than beautiful i think Speaking of stress, I was I doing the research for our conversation. Uh, I had found uh, an old interview with you from uh, when you were doing the publicity for this film. And you talked about uh, moments of emotional release, I believe, was kind of the term that was used within the interview. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious because of that one scene uh, where Michael or where, where Curtis like takes the the I mean, he gets into it with, with Deward, right? It's Deward's his uh, friend. And so, you know, they get into it at that Lions Club dinner and he flips the table and, you know, he just like really confronts everybody. Did did you have that idea like early on or was that sort of that came about like, OK, I'm at this scene, something, you know, I, I need to turn it here. Uh, how, how did that scene come about in your head? Because it's such a powerful scene to me. Well, it was definitely built at the script stage. Um, and, and, it, and everything was kind of uh, <clears throat> building to that. You know, I've talked a lot about in each of my films, there's this um, an emotional pressure point. You know, um, they're in shotgun stories, they're in mud, they're in loving, they're in midnight special. 
And, and that is the emotional pressure point in take shelter. It's kind of this moment where everything you've been doing with the characters and with the plot is really building toward this moment. And if when this significant thing happens, if the audience doesn't feel it, doesn't really feel it, then the whole movie's dead and you failed and <laughs> just, just give up. But if the, if the recipe works and if the calculus works, then all of these things that maybe at times seem tangential or, or not connected to a, to a main narrative thread, what they really are doing is building context for this emotional moment. Um, you know, a lot of scripts, everything they're doing is, is in service of plot and, and, and plot turns. I'm doing something similar, but it's all in service of an emotional catharsis is not the right word because that means you've gotten through something. It's really this just emotional peak. And, and that's what that scene was. So I understood very clearly at the script stage that that was what that moment was hopefully going to be. Um, I think we understood it on set and I definitely understood it in the editing room. You know, we, we did essentially two takes of Mike's speech and, um, and I believe the, the take that is used is the first take because he did one like you see in the film and then he did another one that was quite, uh, it was a lot quieter, less, sorry, use this term, less crazy, you know? Yeah. And I remember sitting with my editor, Park Greg's friend, because uh, we were kind of editing the film together and, and we had both versions cut. And it was like, well, we can have one because you couldn't intercut them because the energy level was so different. And this is why Mike's such a damn good actor. He knew we had limited time and limited takes. And he gave me two choices because we only had time for a couple. And we were sitting there and we're like, man, this quiet one is so good. And it doesn't bump at all. Like it'll just, it'll slot right into the movie and we'll just keep going. But there's this other one that makes me feel really uncomfortable and, and maybe is just too wild. Like it, like people may find it silly or something, you know, like it is, it, it is over the freaking top almost. And I looked at Park and Park looked at me and, and we collectively decided, well, if we haven't earned this version, this, this over the top version, then the movie sucks anyway. So Let's put it in and, and see what happens. Now, when we were at Sundance premiering the film, we really hadn't test screened it or any junk like that. We're sitting in the Eccles Theater, which is the big theater at Sundance. And Mike flips over that table and starts screaming. And in the theater, there's this ripple of laughter. And I was like, ah. like, like, that's it career is over you know these people think this is a silly movie and of course then afterward we got you know staying, I guess it was a standing ovation I don't know people clap and then the reviews came out and then I went to other screenings during that Sundance and the same thing would happen and I realized they're not laughing at the movie they're freaking nervous yeah and they and they had they're having the same feeling that I had which was like Oh God, this is uncomfortable and embarrassing. And for, for some people in the theater, their response is to kind of like giggle. Yeah. But it is not at all a positive, you know, like it is yeah. not at all a judgmental thing. And that's when I sat back and was like, oh hell yeah, this movie's awesome. <laughs> like this is amazing. Yeah. And it was it was funny because it was all part of a very long calculus you know, from, yeah. from writing that, that script. And um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's to this day, I mean, I don't think I've made another movie that exists as a meme, um, but that one does. So. 
mean, that part when he turns to that guy and he's like, you think I'm crazy, Russell? Like, I yeah. still like, like, there's a lot of cringe to that scene, but not in a bad way. It's like cringe and like, oh, like it's, it, it's, it's like, oh, exactly God. what like, you want. Yeah. I mean, I was in Little Rock recently and I just saw this old woman like going off on the night auditor at a hotel. And, and it, it's like that level of like, I don't know how to react. Should I step in? Like, I don't right. know. And, well, and, and it's public, yeah. you know, and, and that has a big part to do with it. If that scene happened in somebody's living room, you know, those are the things behind closed doors and well, everybody's crazy behind closed doors, but the fact that it, it, it happens in public and that it's kind of part of this public, um, you know, judgment on this, on this character, I think is really important. I mean, another anecdote that has to be told, which I, I've told in the past, but it, you know, we didn't have any money on this movie. So, uh, the only way we got all those extras together was um, I don't think it was a lion's step. I think it was like a Knights of Columbus or whatever in, in Ohio. But we, we like just invited people out to have a fried catfish dinner and, um, and, you know, come be part of a movie. And so all these people show up in this small town, Crafton, Ohio, and they didn't know what the hell was going on. And, you know, we're shooting the little stuff and everybody's just eating their fried fish. And then we were like, okay, um, so now this other part's going to happen. And they saw we, you know, we, we filmed kind of the, the fight scene where he gets pushed over the table and yeah. stuff. So, you know, they were like, ooh, you know, stuff's going on. But then it was time for Mike's speech. And we had uh, two cameras. So I, we I was a, wondering oh, about that, if you had two. because We had two, two cameras, which is rare for me, but, but we, knew, we knew we needed them. Yeah. So we had a wide camera, which was our A camera, which we knew was our backup. Like no matter what, we're gonna get, we're gonna get that wide shot. Yeah. And then I had my other camera off to, I believe the, the the right or the left. It must have been the right. And um with a long lens. And and I was like, guys, uh, because Mike and I don't rehearse, we don't really talk very much. I was like, I don't have any freaking clue of what he's gonna do. So just try to keep him, you know head to head to middle of the chest, <laughs> like keep him in this frame and, um, and good luck on focus. Cause like, so they had just thrown like things like little pieces of tape all on the floor that you couldn't see in the wide shot where they had already taken focus pull, you know, distances. Cause when you pull focus on an anamorphic lens, it's very unforgiving and it's really easy to lose focus. But I had some amazing, you know, camera folks that I've worked with over the years that I continue to work with. And so here we are now, we're all set up for this and it, we pick it up right after, you know, he's, he's um, kicked Dewar in the knee and I yell action and Mike Shannon stands up and he starts yelling and then he flips that table over and, and gives his speech all the way through to him walking out with, with Jessica at the end. And it was like the people's faces like they had no clue what just happened and they are literally sitting back in fear and <laughs> they just wanted hush the puppies, end, you know, exactly. And at the end, Mike leaves and I let it just keep running, keep running, keep running, keep running, keep running. And, I'm like, and cut. And there was a second and then everybody started clapping like it was like dinner theater or something. <laughs> and, and it was uh, in a way for them. And it was. And it totally was. And I have to give it to credit to all the people in that room. Cause then we filmed it a couple more times, you know, and then basically we filmed it a second time where the camera's on Mike. And then he ran through it a couple more times and, and we had a camera on Jessica and then we had a camera on the crowd. And, uh, and that's what, you know, so those, you know, one, two, um, three, four shots basically make up that entire scene, um, which it feels more populated than that because of the way we ended up shooting it. And, uh, and yeah, those people stayed in it like the whole time. Like, uh, hey, you, you, you know, you, I've never had extras that good ever. You know, they were totally in it. Now, uh, his dialogue in that speech uh, from the first cut that you used, was that word for word what you wrote? Or was there a, I, I guess the table was improv, but like, uh, what, what else? Was no, improv? the table wasn't improv. Oh, okay. Word for word, note for note. Okay. That's the great thing about Mike. He doesn't change what I write. Um, I mean, and if he does, he's so precious about what I write. 
Um, he's more precious about it than I am sometimes. He'll come up to me and he'll say, I'm not, you wrote your here, but I'm going to say y'all or, or vice versa. I'll say, okay, okay, Mike, that sounds good. And like literally that's, that's about what we're talking about. He said it word for word. And it's one of those speeches that you write. I had a few of them in mud too, where you almost feel like, uh, it's like an out of, out of body experience. Like, you're like, who wrote that? Like, yeah. Like that's pretty damn good. You know, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. There are plenty of times where you're like, God, I wrote that. Jesus. But, you know, um, but sometimes every once in a while, you're like, yeah, who wrote that? Man, that's like, because his, the way he phrases it is sleep well in your beds tonight, you know, because if this thing's come true, you know, like it, it, it's a very odd, um, grammatically, it's very odd, but it made a lot of sense to me, I guess, when I wrote it. It was the summer of 08, right? Or 09, you know, tense times. I get it. Anything, anything goes. You know, one last thing I want to talk about, and I I know you've been uh, somewhat coy about that final scene. And so, you know, I'm not going to ask for, I I know you like to leave it open to everybody from what I've read, but I am curious as to like when that came along in the writing process, because I'd heard that like in that season three of True Detective, that that moment where uh, Marshall Ali, like, um, or my I think Mahershala or Mahershala, Mahershala. yeah, where he yeah. solves the case, that really bittersweet scene. I won't give more away from that, but I'd heard that Nick Pizzolatto had that before any of the in-between came. And like, that was sort of what he was writing towards was that, and, and the team was writing towards. So I'm curious, did you have that final storm? Was that something you saw very early on or was it just like, it, it sort of came to you throughout the process of, well, I've got to end it this way. No, I had it very early on. Um, I had the, you know, title and the ending really early on. Yeah. Um, and that's not unusual for me to have the, the ending. <laughs> that was quite easy. I had that written actually well before I had, you know, it was one of those things where you have it living at the bottom of your document and you're just, you're typing, just trying to get to it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that was very much the case. The, the scene that I'm actually most proud of other than the lines clip scene, but in that movie that I, that I had the hardest time with in a way or, or felt most intimidated was the final moments down in the storm shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had had everything written up to that moment. And then I had everything written after that moment to the end. I just, I didn't know what that moment I, I knew, you know, they're going to try to get out and he's not going to let them out. I knew that that was going to happen, but I didn't know how it was going to play out. And, um, and I kept kind of putting it off and putting it on. And I can't say that I had all of the mechanics worked out in, in this sense. So, so what happens in that scene is he's not going to let him out. And, and it's, you're definitely like, oh no, is he, is this going to go like the shining? Is this going to get real bad? And is he going to not, you know, I know the audience had that fear. I never had that fear because I knew that character. And I was like, no, everything this character's done has been to protect his family. Like he doesn't want to kill him. Like that's not, that's not in the cards. Although I think the audience might've had that in their mind. It's not like the, the Cloverfield Lane movie uh, or anything like that. I've actually never seen that. That's pretty good. But like, you know, I, I just didn't know how it was going to play out. And, and so what happens is he's not going to let him out. And then finally she says, you know, you gotta, you gotta let's go. And, and he says, okay. And he's going to give her the key. And then she's like, she has this moment, which I think is so beautiful where she's like, I'm not going to take it. Cause most people would snatch that key off his finger and go unlock it and be like, get me the hell out of here. But she doesn't because what's most important to her if what's most important to him is protecting his family, what's most important to her is keeping her family together. And she knows, and she says it, you know, that if I open this door, like it's going to prove to you that there's nothing wrong, but, but you got to do it. Like you have to do it. And I didn't have all that worked out until I wrote that scene. And I remember, I remember exactly the moment I was writing it. And I did this thing because I don't listen to music when I write. 
I try not to, because sometimes um, when you listen to music and you write something, the music really helps and you feel like you've written this really beautiful, amazing scene. And then you go back and read it without any music and you're like, this is garbage. Like, what was I thinking? So I, I try not to use that crutch. But in this instance, I knew I needed help. So <clears throat> I put on the Thin Red Line soundtrack, which is obviously the greatest soundtrack ever recorded. And, um, and it was like, uh, you know how like Will Ferrell debates in old school where he kind of like blacks out and just like, <laughs> yeah. does it? That's how that scene felt. Like I just, it just flowed out of me. I didn't really rewrite it. I didn't go back and like, you know, fix the mechanics. It just flowed out of me. It was kind of the most naturally, you know, progressive thing I did. Uh, this part, to this part, to this part, to this part. Progression, I guess. Progress. And, <laughs> and and I looked up and it was done. And uh, and I have to say that shift is, I think, the difference between a really good film and a not as good film. And um, and it just kind of happened in the moment. Yeah. Now, it, uh, the film came out at Sundance, as you mentioned, and then you took it to uh, Cannes, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we were in um, the Critics Week section, which is outside of competition, the main competition. It's a separate sidebar competition that has been, it's nearly as old as the whole festival. Yeah. Okay. And th then you hit the big time and it played in Fayetteville at the Fiesta <laughs> Square Cinema. So here we right. are. Um, it's all uphill. But yeah, I mean, you got a good response. I think even now it's still like 92% or something on Rotten Tomatoes and but very highly ranked and everything. So yeah, there are a lot of people that, and it says a lot about people when I run into them, if they like to take shelter, or they like mud more, um, if they've seen them at all, yeah. obviously. But, um, but for those who know and who've seen them, it tells me a lot about them when they say they like to take shelter more. And there are I, a lot I like of take them. shelter more to be yeah. honest so i love mud though good. it's a great film yeah thanks you know no it's uh um i think it's you know there's this really beautiful thing um that happens early in your career i think as a storyteller and a filmmaker um it's just i don't know things it's like they're they're coming straight out of the vein you know they're they're mm -hmm. they're, ta they're tapped straight out of just this need to express yourself and a feeling. Uh, Take Shelter is very much that. And, and as uh, my career advances and I, and I get older, it gets more refined. It, it, it gets, um, I maybe get technically better at a lot of the, the skills and other things necessary to be a good filmmaker. But, um, but it's, it's, it's very, um, it's very unique to to have a younger filmmaker connecting to something so emotional. Like you never you never get that back. And no no filmmaker would ever purposely put themselves, you know, or hamstring themselves the way that I was, you know, through the budget and everything else yeah. on on Take Shelter. And so this this real magical thing kind of happens, and that's that's when independent film is is really, I think, at its best. And so it, it won't surprise me if moving forward if, if take shelter remains you know the favorite of a lot of people I, I guess my final question on it and then you know whatever you'd like to add about it what was the most important thing you learned from making take shelter that you took with you into mud and loving and and, and you know so on after that well it's funny because i always thought mud would be the one you know and in a lot of ways it was meaning i always thought mud would be the successful one and and financially it yeah, made more money and you know other things so in a way kind of i was right about that but you know take shelter came out of me relatively quickly in terms of the script and the idea it was very much of a moment a personal moment for me in in my life and time it was not extraordinarily calculated in terms of a business move um, or, or a, a move inside the industry. I knew that I needed to make something bigger than shocking stories. I knew I wanted to make 
a hybrid art film genre film, you know, that calculus was there. And to say it wasn't would, would be disingenuous. But, but I think the thing you, you walk away from, from that with, the lesson that you take from it is the closer you can get to yourself, like the more personal you can make these things and the more direct, I guess you can make it, the connection between what you were feeling and what ends up on the screen, the better chance you have of something sticking around and actually having an effect on people. Um, because it really doesn't have that much to do with budget. It, it, it really is about um, this very bright line between you know, what's going on in your chest and what ends up on the screen. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming and talking on Real Talk Arkansas. Um, and love to have you back. I mean, you, you are sort of the boss, so you're always welcome here anytime. Uh, but no, I definitely would love to have you back. Let's talk Shotgun Stories, Mud. I mean, because Shotgun Stories and Mud both have anniversaries in 2022, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully I'm going to be busy making other films and and we'll have to decline. But but I had a, you know, I had a pretty prolific period between you know, 2010 and 2015. And, and um, so we're going to start hitting a lot of anniversaries coming up, but shotgun stories, <coughs> interestingly enough, out of all my films is the only one that I now own. Uh, I finally got the rights back to it after, you know, um, 15 years. And, and so we're going to, we're working on a re-release of that film. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, and hopefully with that re-release uh, right now, we're in talks with Sony pictures, classics, who, who has take shelter to take um, shotgun stories. And we've got some re-release plans for that. I would love to screen that in the state, you know, in yeah. theaters on a, on a really pretty DCP, which has never happened. Yeah, and, I'd, I'd um, love to help you get it set up. So just let me know. Well, thanks, thanks. And then, yeah, and then Mud, <clears throat> I think we'll do something for Mud uh, yeah. maybe next year. So Okay, well, that's great. Keep, keep, we'll keep you posted. All right. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of Real Talk Arkansas. I'd like to thank Jeff Nichols for coming by and you know, for creating this great organization that I get to work for and y'all get to listen to podcasts about. So uh, thanks again, Jeff, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Thanks. I'd like to thank Jeff Nichols for sitting down and chatting with me today. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, like I said, and it's just always great to hear him talk about movies because the man knows his stuff. For those of you out there listening, I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening as always. Be sure to you know, follow us on social media or sign up for our newsletter because we've got a lot of great things coming up for you know, film, film screenings, for educational programming. It's going to be a really big year for ACS, and we are excited to have you all on board. So thanks again for listening. Real Talk Arkansas is produced by Cody Ford. Theme music by Amos Cochran. Thank you for listening and tune in next time. To find out more about Arkansas Cinema Society, visit our website, www.arkansascinemasociety.org.